It's good to see a gaggle of children, isn't it? Well, this morning we look again at Colossians as we continue our study of this great book. Uh, So we're going to turn to Colossians chapter 4. This morning we're looking just at two verses, 5 through 6. Let me remind you that if you don't have a Bible of your own, if you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Uh, You'll find a stack of them, really nice ones, right outside the back double doors, and we invite you to take one on the way out. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find this on page 1,254. And as you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, make, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word We thank you that it contains the very words of life. And would you please, Father, by your Holy Spirit, help us and grow us, change us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Let me ask you, does it matter what people outside the church think about people inside the church. Let me ask us a few different ways. Does it matter what unbelievers think about believers? Does it matter what Bruton thinks about First Pres and its members? Should we be concerned about what those who don't know Jesus think about those who do know Jesus? Well, the answer is yes and no. We're going to get to the resounding yes in a minute, but but the answer is no in the sense that we don't change what we believe or, or hedge on what we believe the Bible says or who Jesus is based upon what the opinion of others. Okay? So we, we aren't people pleasers seeking to accommodate culture so that we might be effective. In fact, when we do that, we lose our effectiveness because we have nothing to offer. The only thing we have to offer is Jesus. And if we change Jesus, then we have nothing to offer. Also, the answer is no in the sense that we are not to peg our zeal for evangelism, holiness, and obedience based upon the reaction of others. We are called to be bold in the face of persecution. Bolder when people think that what we believe is wrong. We are to, with winsomeness and love and respect, always maintain the word of the cross, which is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who, who, are, but those who believe it is the power of God unto salvation. But the answer is a resounding yes, that it does matter what those outside the church think about, what, about those who are inside the church. We, we know this. First and foremost, because the Bible tells us so, uh, over in 1 Timothy 3, 7, we have the qualifications for elders. And one of the qualifications is that he must be well thought of by outsiders. It matters because if people outside the church 
Think about Christians as being those who are ugly and mean and just like the rest of the world, then they will be driven from Christ rather than drawn to Christ. One commentator put it this way. He said, It is because few men read the sacred scriptures, but all men read you. Why should we be concerned about what those outside the church think about those who are inside the church? It is because that while few men read the sacred scriptures, all men read you. The actions and words of Christians will either point people away from Jesus or they will pull people to Jesus. Therefore, let us be godly in our conduct and speech, especially to those who are outside the church, that the honor of Christ might be preserved and that they might be drawn to Jesus. That can be hard in our context, can't it? It can be hard in our context. You know, while there are still many holdovers, especially in the American South of Judeo-Christian values, praise God that there are, but we are increasingly living in a time in which scoffing and mocking of the Lord and the Bible is seen as more and more of a badge of honor. The pressures that our children face in school, um, the, the pressure that employees in the workplace, these things have never been greater. There have always been temptations to sin in every area, in every possible way, in school, in work, and on the, on the ball field or at church. But never has there been a cultural moment in America when the most basic of fundamental truths are not just actively denied, but also aggressively forbidden. But rather than seeing this as a time of discouragement, perhaps we should see this as that the Lord has raised us up for just a time as this. When the profession and the conduct of believers is all the more important of how we engage in, in our communities and how we respond to our culture. You know, the reality is that while things are hard, despair does not belong to the believer. And while this is a new moment for us in America, it is not new for God's people. As we think about the context to which Paul is writing to this small town church, a small church in a small town of, uh, of Colossae. They lived in an age in which the government was increasingly becoming hostile to Christianity to the point where, where uh, Nero would before too long begin to light Christians on fire in his garden to light his parties. You know, they were, uh, the, on top of that, the believers who were converted out of Colossae came out of an, incre an incredibly ungodly religion that had been deeply influenced by Satan. And it involved a lot of religion-sanctioned sexual morality that would have made our modern sensibilities blush. They were coming out of a very ungodly culture, and this was the culture in which they were called to make an impact, to engage with every day in the marketplace and with their friends in the workplace. What does it look like for believers then, and what does it look like for believers now? As we seek to impact our communities for Christ, it comes down to how we act and what we say. These things really do matter. There are many people that you know 
that you are the only professing believer that they know. There may be people in your life that the only time they hear the Word of God not taken in vain might be from your lips. And God calls us in this very polarized time in our culture not to give in to the rhetoric, not to give in to just getting angry and yelling at the TV depending on who's debating what on TV or which flavor of news you like, MSNBC or Fox News. We are instead to be light in this world, salt in this world, offering something that no one else has, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And how we act and what we say has a huge impact on whether people are drawn to Christ or driven away from Him. So this morning we're going to talk about our conduct and our speech and how we are to walk wisely as we deal with outsiders. Outsiders here in the Greek simply means those who aren't Christians. Those who aren't Christians. Let's talk about our conduct. What does it look like to walk wisely before outsiders in our context? First, it absolutely means obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we have to start. What does God want from you? Your sanctification, that you would be godly. He wants your heart, and He wants that heart that has been remade new, made new by Christ and the Holy Spirit that would overflow into good works. And that looks like, first and foremost, obedience. Obedience. You know, the world would have you think that in order to be relevant, in order to be able to engage culture, you must hedge on the things that are offensive, that you must play ball, that you must be part of the system that you must walk away from those really non-essentials. But the Word of God would say the exact opposite. It would say in Psalm 1, verses 1 through 2, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. What does he delight in? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's not a bad impulse to want to be relevant to culture, but I'm here to tell you that the Bible is the most relevant book ever written. And it's not just a book, it is living and active, it is God's Word, and through God's Word, the Holy Spirit brings people from death into life. And what do we have to offer people in our words and our actions? It is the very bread of life. It is the light of the world. It is the one who is the resurrection, the resurrection and the life. It is the one who is the great shepherd and the sheep gate. He is the one who came and laid down his life for us that we who deserve hell might be given eternal life now and forever. Is there anything more relevant than that? What happens to my soul after I die? The number one question that a person must be able to answer. The temptation to change. The temptation to, to whittle away those things which others find offensive or to give in a little bit that we might be watching the same kind of things on TV or using the same kind of language so that we might be able to speak to people. That's something that the world has always sought out of Christians. That Satan might pull them away from walking with Jesus. Instead, what do we have to offer the world is something that is completely different. And when we walk in obedience to the Lord 
and obey him, it robs the world of one of its greatest criticisms of the church, and that's hypocrisy. When the world looks and, and the world looks and sees us in the workplace, when they see us at the ball field and we are acting the same way as everyone else, they say, that, I, don't, I don't want anything to do with that, Jesus. Because apparently he doesn't make any difference in somebody's life. Rather than giving in that we may reach, we instead need to stand firm in the Lord that we may shine for Jesus. People are watching. Does it show up in our business dealings? What would those around us say about our behavior? The second is, as we seek to walk wisely before outsiders, we first have to armor up. This is not something we do in our own strength, in our own might. During the Second World War, as the Allies got closer and closer to invading Normandy, there were two kinds of Sherman tanks. Sherman tanks were the primary tank that were used in Normandy. They were, they were pretty small. It was a medium tank, uh, and it could go in narrow roads. It was pretty light. It, it was uh, a, pretty much a, a good tank, a very utilitarian tank. But as they got ready to invade, they had two kinds of tanks. They had the tanks that were being uh, collected in uh, ports like Portsmouth and Dover, all these places getting ready to, to go over the transports over to Normandy. They were the real thing. There, was a, there were fields in East Anglia that were full of another kind of Sherman tank. And they were part of Patton's Third Army. The Germans thought surely Patton, who was the most aggressive and the most famous of the American generals, they would not invade without Patton. But he was in some trouble. He wasn't going to be involved with that. But instead, they set up a whole bunch of tanks. And do you know what they were made out of? Nylon and air. They were inflatable tanks. They weren't real. Which tanks did they take into battle? The real ones. Now, when we go out of our houses in the morning, we need to make sure we're wearing the right kind of armor because we are going into no less a serious battle than the Allies did on June 6, 1944. Our battle, though, is not against people. We have to remember that. Our battle is not against people, especially unbelievers. Hear me when I say that. Your battle is not against unbelievers. Who is it against? It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spirit, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And what kind of armor do we need in order to be able to engage in that kind of battle? It's not our own. And yet so often we rob ourselves of the armor of God, standing not in the strength of His might, but in our might, as we seek to go and walk wisely before outsiders. Now what happens when, when Satan attacks? If we haven't armored up in the Word of God and in prayer, in the prayer closet, before we leave home, because here's the thing, God knows what's going to happen today, but you and I, we don't. Can I tell you a personal story? I'm going to anyway. So <laughs> yesterday morning, uh, I got up and I, I had a really good Bible study. Praise God. One of those times you walk away and just say, praise Jesus. You've had those, right? I hope you have. And right after that, I pulled out my computer to put some finishing touches on my service packet up here and pulled up my sermon. And guess what? It was blank. I wrote it on Wednesday. And it was blank. Praise God, I'd done my Bible study. 
And the Lord helped me to respond well uh, and rewrite it. Um, we got to armor up because we don't know what today holds. We don't know what today holds. God does, though. The only way that we're going to be able to meet the battles before us is that we have spent time with God. Because, y'all, my heart is just wicked. Isn't yours? Deceitful above all things? Who can understand it? Jeremiah tells. No one, t- no one can, right? And it doesn't take much for me to respond the wrong way or to join in with the others. The pull of the flesh is so strong, isn't it? What does it look like to walk wisely before others, outsiders? First, it looks like obedience. Second, armoring up so that we might obey. Third, there's uh, a simple question. Do my actions serve or diminish the gospel? Do my actions serve or do they serve to diminish the gospel? Do they raise Jesus up or, or do they bring down the honor of Christ in the hearts and minds of those around me? Do they make the name of Jesus something special or something mundane? Do they highlight that Jesus is God and our Savior and a friend of sinners? Or just some name that people claim so they can do whatever they want to? Do my actions, do my attitudes serve the gospel or diminish the name of Jesus? Fourth, fourth point of application is simply to love well. Love will. How do we walk wisely towards those who are around us who don't know Jesus? Love them. No one is hated into the, God, into the kingdom. No one is unkinded into the kingdom. No one is cursed out into the kingdom. No one is impatient Ed, into the kingdom. Right? It means loving them. Because we were loved before we were believers. If God hadn't loved us, we never would have loved Him. It's only because he loved us that we loved him. It's only because he changed us. And so what do we lead with? Kindness, compassion, or indifference and apathy? Do you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? You know, there are these two men who walked by uh, the man who had been robbed and left for dead. The third man helped him at great expense. But do you remember who the two first ones were? They were the religious elite. Were they Presbyterians? Do we lead with love? This priest and this Levite, they saw and they walked on the other side. And they kept on going. That that third man, the good Samaritan, the the Samaritan who was seen as less than a dog by the Jews, he's the one who showed us how to love. Did you know in the Middle Ages, the 14th century might have been the worst century in all of history, apart from Adam and Eve fallen? Uh, That's when a third of the world's population died. A third, between 70 and 200 million people died from the plague. And do you know what Christians did? They stayed in the cities, knowing that to stay and care for those who were dying, there's nothing that can be done for them in order to save them. In order to stay and care for the dying, it was a death sentence. They loved well. Paul tells us that we ought to make the best use of time. You know, as we think about 
those people that the Lord has blessed us to be around who don't know Jesus, we are not guaranteed that we will be around them tomorrow. They might die, you might die. You might get sick, they might get sick. They might get transferred. They might get a new job. They might get fired. They might have to move out of town to take care of a loved one. Or, 1 Thessalonians 5.2, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Would our last interaction with those unbelievers around us, is it one that points them to Jesus or away from Jesus? Are we making best use of the time? Because see, the, the actions and words of Christians will either point people towards Christ or away from them. Therefore, let us be godly in our conduct and speech, especially towards those who are outside of the church, that the honor of Christ might be preserved and that they might be drawn to a saving uh, relationship with Jesus. The second thing he tells us here is that we are to speak graciously to outsiders. Verse 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Speech is powerful. You know, sticks and stones, they break bones, and uh, splints and casts will heal them. But the wounds of words can take generations to heal. There's no such thing as a meaningless word, a comment, or a response. Will we use the power of speech to point people to Christ, or will they be driven from Christ because of the way we speak to, to others and about the Lord? Let me give you an illustration about the power of speech. In 1962, the Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev moved medium-range ballistic nuclear missiles to Cuba, 90 miles off the coast of Florida. Um, th this put the eastern half of our country in danger of destruction within minutes. No notice, basically. Things got so tense that at one point, a Captain Savitsky on the Soviet submarine B-59, do you know what he did? He loaded a, a nuclear-tipped torpedo into the torpedo tube and ordered it to be fired. This, this torpedo would have destroyed everything within a 16-kilometer radius and would have launched our world into World War III. But do you want to know the power of speech? Two of his officers used their words and talked him out of it, saving the world. Between this speech and the negotiations of JFK, we were brought from the brink of nuclear war, all because of the power of words. That's the kind of power that your words have other, over others as well. And God tells us here that we are to be gracious, always gracious in our speech. You know, think about all the sins that we've been forgiven that derive from our sinful speech. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. <laughs> out, of the, out of the mouth, the heart. That would be pretty interesting, wouldn't it? Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. Think about all those sins that we have had to confess over and over and over again about how we have misused speech that caused our Savior to be crucified on the cross, really dead, really die. He had to die for those sins. Think about all those things that we have been forgiven of and as those who have been the recipients of God's grace and towards us in our speech, now we are freed up to use our speech in a godly way to extend grace to others, to build them up and not tear them down. 
Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let's talk about a negative application and a positive one. Negative. It means we don't get to react the way we want to when our food comes to our table and it's wrong. It means that when it's cold or it's late or when someone doesn't do their job, we don't get to react the way we want to. How we react in those moments have a really big impact on what others think about Jesus. It means that we don't get to act like the other people do at the ball field. You know, refs make some really bad calls, don't they? I can probably give you a list. But you know what? Is that really what we're worried about? When people are dying and going to hell? It may be that ref. That's what our actions, that's what our attitude's meant to be about that person. That's a negative. But there's a much bigger and better positive application here. It's not just refraining from sin. It is using our words um, armed with the good news of the gospel that we would be able to bring hope to those who have no hope, to those who are lonely, that we would get to encourage, to those who are downcast, that we might comfort, that we might be instruments in the Redeemer's hands. To love the least and the lost, the lonely, those who are just having a bad day. How does God minister to His people? A lot of times it is through His people. Are there those whom you could grace with your words today? What about unbelievers who may not have had a kind word said to them all day long? Our, our, it says here our speech is supposed to be salty. Probably not the saltiness that we're used to, right? Right? There's no real excuse for salty language. But it's meant to be salty in the sense full of meaning. Salt enhances the flavor of meat if it's done correctly. It brings out flavor rather than smothering. And so do our words bring out value? And do they bring out meaning? Do they bring out hope as we tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ? 1 Peter 3.15 helps us here. Where it says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Don't you love that last phrase, yet do it in gentleness and respect? We are called to know how we ought to answer each person with gentleness and respect. Our conduct shows that we have hope. And while our conduct might draw people towards Christ or drive them away, at some point we have to open our, our mouths because people are not saved by how we act. They are saved by the gospel message that Christ came to die for sinners. That's how people are saved. They hear that and they believe. Have, have, you, have you heard the old phrase, um, in your, always preach the gospel and if you have to, use words? Have you heard this? This is wrong. This is wrong. Okay, I understand what it's trying to say, which is act godly and, and draw people to Christ. But you must use words. 
if people are going to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And as we share the name of Jesus with others, His word will not go out and return void. It will go out and it will achieve the accomplice for which God has set it. Because God uses His word to bring men and women, boys and girls to Christ. Because the Father sent the word, His word, John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So my friends, here's a takeaway. The words and actions of believers will either drive people away from Christ, or draw them to Christ. Let us then be like the moon, which reflects the rays of the sun, giving light in the darkness of night. May we be like mirrors who by our actions and speech reflect the love of Jesus to a dark and dying world. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I pray that you would help us to love well as we have been loved, that we would lay down our lives as our Savior laid down His life for us, that our actions would draw people to Christ, that our words, Lord, would be rich and full, that our lips would be quick to bear the good news of Jesus. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.